order. Questions to the Prime Minister. Karen Lumley. Number one, Mr Speaker. Thank you, Mr Speaker. This morning I had meetings with ministerial colleagues and others, and in addition to my duties in this House, I shall have further such meetings later today. Karen Lumley. Thank you, Speaker. Falling by over 60% and over 5,000 new apprenticeships, Redditch is doing well. And I'm holding my third jobs fair in the next few weeks with 25 companies taking part. Would my right and honourable friend agree with me? We've made a good start, but we must not be complacent and through the Midlands engine continue to get good quality jobs into our region. I very much agree with what my honourable friend said. If we look at the West Midlands and take Today's unemployment figures, we can see that the claimant count has come down in the West Midlands since 2010 by 91,000 people. And I'm sure the House would welcome an update on the unemployment figures out today. Employment in our country at a new record high of 31.4 million people. Compared with 2010, there are now 2,370,000 more people in work than when I became Prime Minister, and the claimant count today down 18,000 in the last month. Figures that I'm sure will be welcomed right across the House. Thank you, thank you, Mr. Speaker. Could the Prime Minister tell the House how many people will die from respiratory disease as a result of air pollution before this country meets its legal obligations on air quality by 2025? I don't have those figures to hand, but what I do know is that we need to make progress on air quality, and that is why we have the new regulations on diesel engines, which is helping. That is why we have the steady decarbonisation of our power sector, which will help, and that is why we do have very strong uh, legislation already in terms of making sure we have clean air, particularly in our cities. Jeremy Corbyn. Mr Speaker, if I could help the Prime Minister, the sad truth is that half a million people would die because of this country's failure to comply with international law on air pollution. Perhaps he could answer another question. How much does air pollution cost our economy every year? Of course it costs our economy billions because people are being injured and that is why we have the new clean air zones, that is why we're seeing emissions from cars coming down and if I give him one example, if we deliver in terms of our carbon reduction plan for electricity generation, we're going to see something like an 85% reduction in carbon uh, between 1990 and 2030. That will give us one of the best records, one of the best green records anywhere in the world. Jeremy Corbyn. Mr Speaker, the Royal College of Physicians estimates that air pollution costs our economy £20 billion per year. The failure to deal with air pollution is killing people. Only a few days ago, London faced a severe smog warning. His friend, the Mayor of London, has presided over a breach, a legal breach of air quality in the capital every day since 2012. So why can't the Prime Minister hurry up action to make us comply with international law and, above all, help the health of the people of this country? Well, it was the Conservative governments in the 1950s that passed the Clean Air Acts, and I'm sure it will be this Conservative government that takes further action, including the clean air zones that we have, including lower car emissions. And why are we able to do this? Not only because we care about our environment, but we've got an economy strong enough to pay for these improvements, as we're just about to hear. 
Mr Speaker, we all welcome the Clean Air Act of 1956, but things have moved on a bit since then. The government, the government are now... The government are now threatened with being taken to court for its failure to comply with international law on air pollution. He is proposing to spend tens if not hundreds of thousands of pounds of public money defending the indefensible. Why not instead invest that money in cleaner air and better air quality for everyone in this country? We are investing money in clean air in our country. For instance, we are phasing out the use of coal-fired power stations far in advance of what other European countries are doing, blazing a trail in terms of more renewable energy, the clean nuclear energy that we're going to be uh, investing in. All of these things will make a difference. But let me say again, you can only do this if you have a strong economy able to pay for these things. Jeremy Corbyn. Mr Speaker, if the Government and the Prime Minister are so keen on renewable and clean energy, could he explain why on Monday the House approved new regulations to allow communities a veto on clean energy projects like shore wind? I got a question from Angela from Lancaster. She asked the Prime Minister this. If I was you, I'd listen. Will the Prime Minister offer the same right of veto to her community and communities like her across the country of a veto on fracking? We have a proper planning system for deciding these things. But if he wants to know, if he wants to know what is happening in terms of renewable energy, 99% of the solar panels in this country were installed since I became Prime Minister. That is the green record we have. The United Kingdom now has the second largest ultra-low emission vehicle market anywhere in the European Union. We've seen one of the strongest growths in renewable energy. But isn't it remarkable? Five questions in and no welcome for the fall in unemployment. No mention of the 31 million people now in work. No mention of the fact that we've got more women in work, more young people in work, that more people are bringing home a salary, bringing home a wage and paying less taxes. Not a word from the party that I thought was meant to be the party of Labour. That's the truth. The party of working people, getting people into work, is on this side of the House. Mr. Mr. Speaker, the questions to the Prime Minister are these. He once was boasted that he led the greenest government ever. No husky was safe from his cuddles. But so could he explain why the Energy and Climate Change Select Committee has produced a damning report when it comes to green energy, saying that major investors describe his policies as risky as a result of cuts and changes. Why is this government so failing the renewable energy sector, clean air, investors, consumers and those that work in that industry? I think if any any proper look at the figures will find that this government has a remarkable record in green energy. Let me take, let me take the Climate Action Network. The Climate Action Network, they said 
that Britain is the second best country in the world for tackling climate change after Denmark. That is our record. Since 2010, we've reduced greenhouse gases by 14%. We're over-delivering against all of our carbon budgets. We secured the first truly global legally binding agreement to tackle climate change. And we've got annual support for renewables, more than doubling to over £10 billion by 2020. On renewable electricity, we're on track to deliver our target of at least 30% from renewable sources by 2020. And almost all of that will have happened under a Conservative-led government. That's our record and we're proud of it. Closed question, Mr Michael Fabrican. Question two, Mr Speaker. There are some very positive things going on in the West Midlands economy, and today's figures show employment in the region up by 140,000 since 2010, and more than 108,000 businesses were created in the region between 2010 and 2014. Thanks to our long-term economic plan for the Midlands engine, we've been able to invest in our public services in the West Midlands, helping to build a strong NHS, reform our education system, and give our police the resources they need. Michael Fabrican. Unemployment is down again in my beautiful Litchfield. And yesterday was an absolute first for the West Midlands when the whole region cooperated to present 33 investment schemes at an international conference in Cannes, which will create a further 178,000 jobs. So what more can the Prime Minister do to support the Midlands engine? Apart from ensuring, of course, that we never get a Labour government. Well, I'm very glad my honourable friend chose to be here rather than can. I'm very relieved by, uh, by that. He's right about these 33 schemes. Just last week, we had a £300 million deal signed between Chinese investors and CAD CAM Automotive that create 1,000 jobs in Coventry. Uh, my right honourable friend, the business secretary, was in Staffordshire as Nestle opening a new coffee factory, uh, 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 bringing 400 jobs. And, of course, we got that historic deal with the West Midlands, which will see significant new powers devolved to the combined authority and the directly elected members. We're changing the way our country is run, devolving power, building the strength of our great cities, and Birmingham is the second city of our country. Angus Robertson. There is widespread reporting, Mr Speaker, that the UK Government is about to commit to send ground troops to Libya to train government forces there. Is this true, and why has Parliament not been informed about it? Well, of course, if we had any plans to send conventional forces for training in Libya, then of course we'd come to this House and discuss it. What we want to see in Libya is the formation of a unity government. There is progress with Prime Minister Siraj, who can now lead that government of national accord. We'll want to hear from him what assistance and help that we think should be given in Libya. And countries like Britain, like France, like America, like Italy, will definitely try and help that new government. Because right now, Libya is a people smuggling route that is bad for, uh, the, bad for Europe and bad for us and also you have the growth of Daesh in Libya which is bad for us and bad for the rest of Europe but uh, if we have any plans for troop training or troops deployment uh, in a conventional sense of course we'll come to the House and discuss it. Sir Angus Robertson. Thank you Mr Speaker. Uh, the UK spent 13 times more bombing Libya than securing the peace after the overthrow of the hated Gaddafi regime. And the critics of UK policy even include President Obama of the United States. So will the Prime Minister give a commitment 
to bring the issue of any potential Libyan deployment of any British forces to Parliament for approval before giving the green light for that to happen. Will he give that commitment, yes or no? Very, very happy to give that commitment, as we always do. Uh, look, I think uh, I'm very clear that it was right to take action to prevent that slaughter that Colonel Gaddafi would have carried out against his people in Benghazi. I believe that was right. Of course, you know, Libya is in a state that is very concerning right now, and everyone has to take their responsibilities for that. What I would say is after the conflict, the British government did support the training of Libyan troops. We did bring the Libyan Prime Minister to the G8 uh, in Northern Ireland. We went to the United Nations and passed resolutions to help that government. Government, but so far we haven't been able to bring about that government of national accord that can bring some semblance of stability and peace to that country. But is it in our interest to help that government do exactly that? Yes it is and we should be working with others in order to try and deliver that. Baron Davis. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you uh, Mr Speaker. My constituency of Goa, which was won for the first time ever by the Conservatives. Be transformed along with the rest of the region by the Swansea Bay Tidal Lagoon. Having signed on a 1.2 billion deal yesterday for Cardiff, could the Prime Minister give an absolute assurance that the government review on tidal lagoons will do everything to ensure that the wider Swansea Bay Tidal Lagoon project fits the UK energy strategy and does he further recognise the economic potential this will bring to the Swansea Bay region? Can I thank my honourable friend? Um, I do remember visiting his constituency just after his excellent victory uh, last year. I seem to remember we went to a brewery for a mild um, celebration. He's right that tidal lagoons do have potential. Last month we launched an independent review of tidal lagoon power to better understand the technology. We'll look carefully at the findings of that review and continue working closely with the developers in order to make a decision on Swansea. Ian C. Lucas. <coughs> Wrexham and North Wales is a strong manufacturing and exporting region, but its growth is constrained by lack of access to airports in northwest England. The Office for Rail Regulation is currently considering applications for rail paths from North Wales. Will the Prime Minister support a cross-party campaign for fairness for North Wales and for access to airports in northwest England? Tell him. So the uh, former Secretary of State for Wales, the Honourable Member for, for um, uh, Cluid West, came to see me recently about this because I think there is a very strong argument for how we can better connect North Wales uh, with the northwest of England and make sure that we build on the economic strength of both. So I'll look very carefully at what he says and what my right honourable friend says about uh, the potential for, for increasing rail capacity. Dr James Davis. Thank you, yeah. Mr. Last week, a High Court judge ruled in favour of a CPO of the Grade 2 star listed former North Wales Hospital in Denby. Years of neglect by its offshore company owner resulted in the buildings being brought to the point of collapse. Thanks to the groundbreaking work carried out by Denbyshire County Council and the Prince's Regeneration Trust, their future should now be safeguarded. But what can the Prime Minister do to prevent buildings such as these which are deemed national assets from falling into the hands of those who are not fit and proper guardians, and particularly those outside of the control of our judicial system. 
Now, my honourable friend makes an important point, and I am aware of this case. And while heritage is a devolved matter, it is great news that these buildings, uh, which I know how important they are, will be safeguarded. It is my understanding they were brought way back in 1996 by a company and then left completely abandoned. And as he says, that is no way to treat a Grade II star listed status building. That is why we have the powers in place for compulsory purchase orders. And I think in this case, Denbyshire Council were absolutely right to use them. Councils should have the confidence that they have these measures, and when appropriate, they should be prepared to use them. Bin Baron. Two weeks ago, in front of the Education Select Committee, the head of Ofsted, Sir Michael Wilshaw, said that 16 to 19 education should be done in a school-based environment <coughs> and not in an FE institution. He then went on to say that some pupils head off towards the FE institution, do badly, they get lost and drop out. Does the Prime Minister agree with him? I think we need a, a, a range of settings for, um, for, for, uh, for, for A-levels and for post-16 study. I would say this, there are a lot of secondary schools in our country who would like to have a sixth form, and I think there are great benefits for yeah, yeah. particularly the 11-year-olds going to secondary school who can look to the top of the school and see what girls and boys are achieving, 16, 17, 18, what A-level choices they're making, what futures they're thinking of, and I think for many people it's very inspiring to go to a school with the sixth form, but let's encourage both, let's have the choice, and that's why this academisation of schools is so important, because it gives schools the ability to make these choices for our children. Richard Graham. In Apprenticeship Week, I'm sure the Prime Minister will join my thanks to the employers who created 6,500 apprenticeships in Gloucester since 2010, the Gloucester Citizen for its support, and all the apprentices themselves, including my first apprentice, Laura Pearsall, now Gloucester's youngest ever city councillor. Looking forward, would my right honourable friend do all he can to hasten the introduction of associate nurses who will be higher apprentices and make a huge difference to the NHS and our health sector more broadly? Well, first of all, he's right to say. I mean, the South West has delivered over 280,000 apprenticeship starts since 2010. Uh, so it's absolutely pulling uh, its weight, and, and, and well done to his constituents for doing that. I think he's also right about the introduction of associate nurses. We're working with Health Education England to take this on to offer another route into nursing, which I think can see an expansion of our NHS. Lee Cowan. Yeah. Yeah. Mr Speaker, according to the statistics provided by the House Library, there are an estimated 280,000 problem gamblers in the United Kingdom. Can the Prime Minister indicate when the Government will take forward the 2010 report prepared for the Department of Culture, Media and Sport? And does the Prime Minister agree with me that the money from dormant betting accounts should be used to support those whose lives have been destroyed by gambling? Well, first of all, we will study this report carefully. We did take some action in the last Parliament to deal with problem gambling in terms of the planning system and in terms of the way uh, particularly fixed uh, odds betting terminals worked. I'm very happy to keep examining this issue and to act on the evidence, and I'll be discussing it with the Secretary of State for Culture, Media and Sport. Ronald J. Wardener. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The systematic killing of Christians and other minority groups by the so-called Islamic State across the Middle East has reached unprecedented proportions. So the action being taken by Her Majesty's Government is just. But what more will my right honourable friend do, working with the international community, to halt this genocide being committed against Christians by what I'd rather call 
the satanic state. Well, my honourable friend is absolutely right to draw attention to what Daesh is doing uh, in terms of persecuting Christians and others, not least actually others of other faiths and indeed uh, Muslims who, who they take uh, disagreement with. What we must do is keep to the plan. We can see that we have shrunk the amount of territory Daesh have in Iraq by about 40%. We are seeing also some progress in Syria as well. But this is going to take time and we must show the patience and the persistence to make sure that we rid the world of this evil death cult. Callum McKay. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Uh, the Prime Minister's energy policy is a complete shambles. It is wholly dependent upon the troubled and eye-wateringly expensive new nuclear plant at Hinckley. Uh, there is barely a plan A, let alone a plan B. Is the Prime Minister seeking to build the world's most expensive power station or the world's biggest white elephant? Well, what we're planning is to continue with a successful energy policy which is seeing cheaper energy and lower carbon at the same time. Now the whole strength of the Hinckley deal is that there is no payment unless this uh, power station goes ahead and is built efficiently uh, by EDF. And I think that will be good for our energy supplies because if you want to have uh, energy at low cost and low carbon, you need to have strong nuclear energy at the heart of your system. Kevin Holland Rake. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Antibiotic Research UK, situated in my constituency, is the world's first charity to tackle antimicrobial resistance, a looming global danger of disaster movie style proportions. Would the Prime Minister agree to meet with me to see how we can fund their vital research so that this time it's not the Americans that save the world, but the British? Uh, I'm very happy to meet with my honourable friend and he's absolutely right to raise this issue because of the growing resistance to antibiotics and the fact that in so many cases now antibiotics aren't working we do face a genuine medical emergency around the world. That is why Britain has put this issue squarely on the agenda of the G20, why it was a large part of our discussions with the Chinese uh, when they made the state visit last year and why we're investing £50 million in an innovation fund working with the Chinese government to take this Forward, and I hope that the organisation in his constituency can benefit from some of this research. Tim Farron. Mr Speaker, the Prime Minister will know that his Home Secretary is once again trying to deport Afghan interpreters seeking sanctuary in the United Kingdom. These brave people risked their lives serving our armed forces, yet they now face being sent back to the mercy of the Taliban or to join hundreds of thousands of people rotting in refugee camps. Is this how Britain should repay those who put their lives on the line for us? Instead, will he do the right thing and do whatever possible to ensure they are offered safe haven here? Well, what we did in the last um, government in which his party played a role was that we agreed a set of uh, conditions for Afghan interpreters to be able to come to the UK and be given a sanctuary, but we also provided for a scheme so that those who wanted to stay and help rebuild their country were able to do so. And I would still defend that, uh, that scheme, even if his party's changed his mind. Andrea Jenkins. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My constituent, Deborah Reed and her sister, watched her mother, Joan, waste away in hospital due to inadequate care after a fall, which has been admitted by the consultant in charge. Last week, my right honourable friend, the Health Secretary, hosted a global summit on patient safety and announced the creation of the new healthcare safety investigation branch. What more can the government do to ensure patient safety is at the heart of the NHS and prevent such instances occurring in the future? Yeah. Yeah. 
I think my honourable friend is absolutely right to raise cases like this, and obviously they are horrendous when they take place, and they should be properly investigated. But as she says, we then need to learn the lessons from them. Now, I think we have made some progress. The proportion of patients being harmed in the NHS has dropped by over a third in the last two years, and MRSA bloodstream infections have fallen over by over half in the last five years. But I think my right honourable friend, the Health Secretary, is absolutely right to hold this uh, conference and to examine what other uh, industries and practices have done in order to have a 100% z- you know, zero accident safety culture. We have seen this in other walks of life and it's time that we applied it to the NHS. Dawn Butler. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Just eight days ago, Oliver Tetlow popped to the shops. He was brutally shot dead. The community are shocked and saddened by this murder of an innocent young man. They have asked for more community local policing and more youth engagement. Will the Prime Minister meet with me and some community champions to discuss how we can make our streets safer? The Honourable Lady raises a very important point, and I think what we have seen in in London is actually a reduction in gun crime. It's a tragic case she refers to, and our hearts go out to the family of of the person that she she talks about. But we have seen a reduction. We have seen more active policing in our communities, better intelligence policing in terms of dealing with gun crimes, and we must keep that up, and I'll certainly arrange whatever meeting I think is best to make sure uh, that the voices she she mentions are listened to. Stephen Metcalf. Uh, Thank you, Mr Speaker. Uh, As my right honourable friend will be aware, Highways England are (coughs) consulting on a new Lower Thames crossing, with their preferred option being so-called option C, which will divert 14% of traffic away from the existing Dartford crossing. Does my right honourable friend agree with me that before spending billions on a new crossing, we should actually sort out the problem at the existing crossing, not only helping a greater number of motorists, but to improve illegal levels of poor air quality and restore resilience to the M25 motorway network. And will he meet with me to discuss these matters further? I think my honourable friend makes an important point. As we were discussing earlier, we need to tackle congestion and air quality, and actually stationary traffic is more polluting than moving traffic, and so sorting out the problems at the existing Dartford crossing is important, but I do believe we've also got to look at the options for a new crossing. Uh, As I understand it, two locations are now on the table as a result of early detailed work, uh, and these are the best available options. Highways England have looked in detail at both locations in terms of the economic and community impact, and we look forward to seeing what they recommend, and I hope when they do we can then make progress. This is a vital set of arteries for our country's economy, and we need the, the, the traffic to be flowing smoothly. Chris Leslie. Yeah. On, yeah. on reflection, was it wise of the Chancellor to bank on the theory of a £27 billion windfall when it's only gone and vanished in the space of the last three months? Well, I think we'll be hearing quite a lot from the Chancellor in a minute or two, but what I would say is that we have got an economy that is fundamentally strong, facing a very difficult set of world circumstances. But here in Britain, when you look at it, unemployment at 5%, inflation at virtually 0%, the unemployment figures today showing unemployment falling again, and wages growing at 2%. That is a better record than most other countries in the developed world can boast and a lot of that is down to the very clear plan set out by my right honourable friend and followed these last six years. Steve Double. Thank you Mr Speaker. Last week was English Tourism Week and I was delighted to welcome an international delegation to the Eden Project to promote Cornwall as a destination for international (laughs) tourists. 
Visitor numbers are up in Cornwall, but there is still more we can do to attract uh, overseas visitors out of London and into the regions of our country. Yes. Can I ask the Prime Minister what more the government can do to support the tourist industry and particularly to get more overseas visitors to come to Cornwall? Yeah. Yeah. My, my honourable friend knows that there is, as far as I'm concerned, nothing finer than getting out of London and getting down to Cornwall and uh, no better place than Polzeth Beach when the sun is setting and the, the, waves, are, uh, the waves are big. And, uh, and, and my phone is, is working. Uh, he's absolutely right. And the Daily Mail photographer's gone home too, that helps. <laughs> but what we do need to do is get people who come to our country to visit the, the, the wonders of London, to spend some time outside London, and that is what some of the new schemes we've announced, like for instance the £40 million Discover England Fund, are all about. And I would urge uh, the authorities in Cornwall to make the most of it. Angela Smith. Mr Speaker, in, 20, in 2014 we exported £12.8 billion worth of food products, with 73% of that total going to other European states. No wonder that 71% of Food and Drink Federation members want us to avoid Brexit. Does the Prime Minister think that our prospects of improving further the export profile of food manufacturing will be strengthened by staying in the European Union. Yeah. Well, I think the view from food manufacturers and indeed from farmers and from the wider business community, 81% of whom yesterday said they wanted to stay in a reformed Europe, I think is very clear. And I think the arguments on food are particularly clear. Our farmers produce some of the cleanest and best food anywhere in the world and they know they have access to a market of 500 million consumers without tariffs, without quotas and without any problems. And we shouldn't put that uh, at risk. And when we look at some of the alternatives to being a part of the single market, for instance, a Canadian-style free trade deal, we can see there are restrictions, for instance, quotas on beef. And I don't want to see that applying to British farmers who got so much to be proud of. Yeah. Sir Simon Burns. Yeah. Yeah. Does my right honourable friend agree that having an inspirational mentor can provide young people with the opportunities they would never have benefited for, from before. Can he tell me how the £14 million that the government will be putting into a new national mentoring scheme will be able to benefit some of the most disadvantaged children in our society? No, well, I absolutely agree with my right honourable friend. I think one of the most important things that our schools can look to do in the future is to encourage mentors from business, from the public sector, from charities into their schools to give that extra one-on-one -on -one help that young people so benefit from. I was at a Harris Academy in Southwark yesterday uh, to see how well that is going, where every child studying GCSEs who wants a mentor can get them. And I think it makes a huge difference to those children's life chances. The £14 million pounds we're putting in should allow an extra 25,000 of the most disadvantaged people in our country have a mentor and I would urge all schools to look at this. I think there are so many people in business, in the public sector, in charities who would love to take part in this and help young people achieve their potential. Brian Lucas. Thank you Mr Speaker. The Prime Minister likes to suggest that he's the champion of localism but today his government is seeking to gag local communities with a crass forced academist policy that stamps out local consultation and dissent. Can he explain to the vast majority of parents and residents in Brighton and Hove 
who recently roundly rejected academy status for two local schools, why it is that their views will count for nothing in the future. I would argue that academy schools are true devolution because you end up with the parents, with the governors, with the head teacher having full control of the school, able to make decisions about the future of that school. And if that doesn't convince her, then I would say look at the results. If you look at primary sponsored academies, you can see that they have got better records and they're improving faster. If you look at the converter academy schools, 88% of them are rated good or outstanding. This is true devolution, making sure every head teacher is in charge of their school, providing the great education we want for our children. Finally, Pauline Latham. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. My constituent, Jackie Woodcock, has been diagnosed with terminal breast cancer. She's shown outstanding courage in her fight against the disease, but unfortunately, Jackie did not get the support or the compassion of her employer, who wanted to dismiss her through capability procedures. Now, her former partner, Andy Bradley, is trying to get the house they own together repossessed, leaving her homeless whilst dying. Would the Prime Minister agree with me that we require better protection for working people who are diagnosed with a terminal illness? Will he join with me and Jackie in supporting the changes as outlined in the TUC's Dying to Work campaign? I I think the points my honourable friend makes are absolutely right. I will look very carefully at the case that she raises. The truth is, in all of these things, as well as having clear rules, you also need organisations, whether it's employers, whether it's housing associations or landlords, or indeed trade unions, to act with genuine compassion. To act with compassion and to think of the person, the human being, at the other end of the telephone. Order!